around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer and I can be joined in a moment by our newly promoted senior reporter Catherine Kennedy as we take a look at the most recent headlines in the world of civil engineering and consider what might be in the news in 2022. Later on our features editor Satiris Canaris will be joining me with two special guests as we explore the wider community benefits that could come from the growing number of privately owned public spaces. So congratulations on your new job title Catherine, what a lovely way to start the new year. But what about the rest of the civil engineering industry? Are they experiencing the same positive start? And what are we expecting from the coming year? Well, yeah, it certainly feels optimistic so far. So none of the big projects have reported any issues with the rise of the Omicron variant um, in December and January. So, so far, so good on that. However, the London Assembly has written to Crossrail Chief Executive Mark Wilde to express fears that the variant could impact progress being made. Um, and Crossfield is set to open its central section in the first half of the year. So, um, yeah, they were having some concerns about that. But on a lot of big projects, it, it seems to be OK. There's also been some good news around the funding needs for the project, too, to get it over the line and actually open, haven't there? Yeah, there have been. So um, initially... Crossrail needed this 1.1 billion additional funding um, was estimated as necessary to to complete the project. So I think it was following the initial lockdown and, and COVID-19 shutdown that the, the project said it would need that additional money. Um, so in November 2020, a funding deal for 825 million of the 1.1 billion was reached. So that obviously still leaves a funding gap, but um, TfL Commissioner Andy Byford has said he's confident the project won't need the full um, 1.1 billion and he's challenging the team to get as close as possible to that 825 million. So that is, that's looking positive as well. That's really good, but it's not been such a great start for Transport Secretary Grant Shapps and National Highways though as the 19th of January marked a full year since the development consent order decision, that's the planning permission, for a major road scheme was made on time. It was on 19th of January 2021 the Grant Shops gave the green light for the A1 Berkeley to Coal House Improvement Scheme, a £220 million upgrade, which is part of a series of motorway upgrades being carried out in the northeast. Since then, each and every one road scheme that should have been decided on hasn't been, it's been delayed by the Transport Secretary. And the latest planning delay was announced just four days into 2022, with Grant Shapps putting off the decision on another part of the A1 upgrade, this time between Morpeth and Ellingham in Northumberland. There is a whole catalogue of projects where decisions have been repeatedly pushed back and where decisions have been made. They've been quashed by the High Court following environmental challenges too. 
Yeah, and industry leaders have told us that the national policy statements need to be updated to overcome these decision issues. And they predate the government's 2050 net zero promise, the 10 point plan for a green industrial revolution, the new sixth carbon budget, and as well the transport decarbonisation plan. Um, so, I mean, that's where a lot of the problems are coming from. And that update is not planned for the road and rail policy statements until spring of next year. So it looks like we could have another year of delays at least. Eek, that doesn't sound good. But on the topic of major projects this year, let's have a look at what's coming up on other schemes. So I was going to say that Lower Thames Crossing is expected to resubmit its development consent order early this year. But with the policy statement issues, that doesn't bode well for a quick decision on that. And we've got to bear in mind also, we originally expected the planning application to be made this time last year after the project team withdrew the initial application in November 2020. I think it was just a day before the original decision was expected too. Mm-hmm. And But despite those delays, the procurement is still pushing ahead and progress on the three main work packages has gathered pace and the contracts are on track to be awarded in the middle of this year, I think. Yeah, and I mean, it's all happening roads-wise. So staying on that topic, we can't really not mention the Stonehenge Tunnel. Um, So Grant Shapps is currently in the process of redetermining his decision on that National Highways planning application. So a High Court judge ruled the original decision to approve the scheme was unlawful as he had failed to take into account the environmental impact of the scheme in relation to those government commitments to reducing carbon emissions. So we're still waiting to see that resubmission from National Highways, but we will hopefully learn more on that soon. Um, in the meantime, the scheme's procurement has been put on ice and it, it looks increasingly unlikely that the project will begin construction before the end of the current investment period draws to a close. So that's 2025. Um, so, yeah, all, all still up in the air on that one, but will be interesting to see that resubmission when it's available. So let's look at some more positive news now. And the Integrated Rail Plan was finally published in November last year. And it committed seventeen billion to the creation of the western leg of HS two, which will extend the high speed rail route from Crewe to Manchester. And according to the integrated rail plan, passengers could see completion of the western leg, which is also known as Phase Two B, by the early to mid twenty forties. Yeah, and in August, then HS two limited chief executive Mark Thurston said that the bill for the western leg is scheduled to be deposited in Parliament in early twenty twenty two, or sooner if possible. So obviously, <laughs> sooner has not been possible, <laughs> but um, that should be coming soon. And then, according to Pinsent Mason's partner Robbie Owen, he has said action is now required to get legislation for the western leg through Parliament before the next general election. So hopefully, we're going to see a lot of movement on that soon. Yeah, the impact of the integrated rail plan on other rail schemes is still a hot topic. And just last week, Grant Shapps called the Northern Mayor's irrational, mm. which led to South Yorkshire Mayor Dan Jarvis accusing Grant Shapps of throwing his toys out of the pram. So it's I think kicking off. it is. So I think that's a story we're going to see continuing all year for sure. But let's take a look at what's in store for energy projects this year. For most of last year, it really looked like Sizewell C was going to be the next nuclear power station to get the go ahead from government. But new proposals for energy for small, is it small modular reactor, SMR technology, mm-hmm. means that Wilver in North Wales could be back on the agenda. I mean, both of them require government funding and government appetite to actually go ahead. But on the face of it, that appears to be there. I think that both projects will feature in our news coverage this year, but I think it's mostly in the form of will they go ahead, won't they go ahead, rather than any firm decisions being made there. 
Yeah, lots of will they, won't they on the energy side of things, I think. And um, I suppose one more definite story is Hinkley, which is progressing. Everything is continuing there. There have been some um, reports about challenges at other EDF projects, but um, EDF has said they aren't going to affect things at Hinkley. Um, quite interesting though, so uh, there's been a delay to the construction of EDF's Flamanville 3 project in France. So that uses the same EPR design as at Hinkley. And that delay is due to the fuel loading system. So it's now scheduled to be loaded in the second quarter of 2023, I think. And EDF has said that uh, the delay is because of COVID disruption and also learnings that need to happen because there was another issue at a plant in China, um, in Taishan. So some steps need to be taken before the f- fuel is loaded. And there's some lessons that they are kind of processing from the issue in China as well. Um, but they have been keen to emphasise that's not going to impact Hinkley. So all seems to be progressing. That's good. It sounds like Hinkley will benefit from the learnings on those other projects, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But what else is coming up this year? There's the start of tunnelling for Silvertown Tunnel, the final designs for the scale-back Houston station are expected. Maybe Grant Shapps will be making a decision on the Portishead branch line and possibly a planning decision on, on the London theme park too. So that's a quick rundown then of the major projects and expected milestones. But what about broader issues affecting the sector this year? Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's some ongoing problems there, aren't there? And I guess the, the main one is looking at carbon reductions because although COP26 has come and gone, sustainability and cutting carbon is very much still a focus, especially for us right now because we're in the final stages of putting our annual carbon net zero issue to press. We've got a big focus on the role of materials in cutting embodied carbon, but one of the challenges of 2021 that's expected to continue into this year is the rising cost of construction materials. Yeah, and energy prices and their impact on the construction sector, that's also likely to be an ongoing theme as well, I think. But there are a few other changes coming through as well. There's the Building Safety Bill, which is likely to change this year as well. It's currently making its way through Parliament and is set to change how certain buildings are constructed, maintained and made safe. It will include regulatory reforms on fire safety and quality of construction projects and introduce a new developer levy too. I mean, virtually everybody involved in design, construction and management of higher risk buildings will be affected by this and expected that the bill will receive royal assent sometime between April and June this year, with the provisions coming into force in stages after that. And then it will be down to the HSE to oversee the new building safety regime. And it's already urging affected parties to actually and designers to prepare for it and actually look at what the changes are there. Mm, it'll be interesting to see how that um, progresses, actually. And the yeah, one other thing we've been thinking about is skills. Um, so it looks like they're going to be another recurring theme this year. Figures from the ONS show a record leap in job vacancies, estimated to be 1.2 million in September 2021 across all industries. So the skills shortage has been a growing concern within construction due to workers reaching retirement age and not enough people then entering the industry to replace them. The industry's also seen a 42% decline in EU workers. So a lot of challenges there going forward. Yeah, plenty of challenging issues there. But the ones I am pleased to see they're being talked about more are, are mental health, diversity and inclusion, as well as the need to measure social value of the projects we deliver. They're all really difficult subjects to address, but get it right. And I do think the civil engineering industry can position itself as a more appealing career path in long term. But that won't address the skills issue quickly. 
But we are starting to talk about it and that that is what we need to be doing. And the need for collaboration and discussion leads me on to this episode's interview. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. Normally the new year is filled with stories about flooding and while there have been flood warnings issued, so far it's not a topic that's dominated the headlines this month. I have to caveat that this month's episode was recorded a few weeks before release, so that might have changed by now, but I really hope not. But it was a conversation about last summer's flooding in urban areas, particularly in London, with Civic Engineers Director Gareth Atkinson, that led to the topic for this interview. That chat followed on from an ongoing discussion I've been having with Unseen Architecture Director Madeleine Kessler about the rise of privatised public space across the UK and how engineers, architects and urban designers can work together to develop strategies for more inclusive ownership, access and use. We're joined today by both Madeline and Gareth to explore how the two could and should be linked and look at what other benefits could come from private estate owners considering a wider community as they plan, develop or redevelop their properties in the face of the climate crisis. So Satiris, can you introduce our guests please? Sure. Trained as an architect and engineer, Madeline is a founding director of Madeline Kessler Architecture and Unseen Architecture. She's also co-curator of the British Pavilion at the 2021 Venice Architecture Biennale. With over a decade of practice experience, her interests lie in the interface between people, infrastructure and public space. She's a member of the National Infrastructure Commission Design Group and teaches at universities, including the London School of Architecture and Architectural Association. In 2019, she was awarded the RIBA Rising Star Award, and in 2020, she was named in the Architects Journal 40 Under 40. Gareth is an engineer and urbanist leading Civic Engineers London Studio. With a passion for well-functioning architecture, urban design and placemaking, he runs the civil and, and structural engineering for projects ranging from the extension and adaptation of existing buildings to large-scale regeneration and public realm improvement projects. Welcome to the Engineers Collective to you both. Um, Madeline, can you start us off by outlining the scale and pace at which privatised public space has grown in the UK in recent years. And um, if you could talk a bit about the drivers for that change. Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me here today. I'm really excited to be back on the podcast and part of this conversation, which is so close to my heart. As a bit of background for the past sort of three years, we've been exploring privatised public space as part of the British Pavilion in our project called the Garden of Privatised Delights. And that project's really been looking at how privatised public space is often considered as something that's quite new, as sort of new paved squares and in new developments. But in fact, it's something that goes back for generations within British culture, you know, from everything from the pub, the original opening up 
of people's living rooms to allow the public in, uh, to networks like the high street, to sort of garden squares in central London. And we've been exploring how we can start to sort of rethink and, and open up our privatised public spaces to make them more inclusive and accessible uh, for everyone to use. And so as part of this, um, we sort of began by doing um, a lot of research and we came across this website and book by Guy Shrubsaw and Anna Powell Smith called Who Owns England? And they've sort of spent the past few years mapping who owns all the pieces of land within England and Wales. And it's quite incredible because unless you have sold a piece of land within the far past few decades, it actually doesn't have to be documented by the land registry. So there's a whole swathe of the UK, sort of around 5.2 million acres which is privately owned, but it's not actually documented on the land registry, which is a real problem because, you know, if, for example, you see a little bit of land at the end of your street that no one's using and you're wondering, oh, how can I make that into like a playground for, for the kids to use? Unless you actually know who owns that piece of land, it's really difficult to get that conversation even started. And so there's real lack of transparency um, over land ownership in the UK, which we're really interested in. You know, how how can we sort of uh, ensure that land ownership is more transparent. Um, and also when land is registered on the land registry, often it's not even attributed to a particular owner. It's sort of owned by an overseas holding company. So it's all very, very opaque. And this sort of becomes really problematic with things like uh, the Occupy London protests, for example, in 2011. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there were whole there were these protests um, on Paternoster Square just near St Paul's Cathedral. And Paternoster Square, it sort of feels like a very public square, um, but it turns out it's actually owned by the Mitsubishi Estate Company. And so when people started protesting there, that's one of the rules that the Mitsubishi Estate Company sort of had with their land. But no one, no one there knew that. So the police came and sort of ushered the protesters on. And that sort of becomes really scary when suddenly you've got these sort of basic human rights that you should have in a city that, that you can't do. Um, and that you, I mean, ultimately that you don't even know you're on private lands until you've broken the rules. And so the, there's some really interesting kind of, well, there's a lot of really interesting conversations about it at the moment. But I think what's really interesting is last year, the GLA, the Greater London Authority, uh, they brought out this public London charter, which is the first, it's the first of its kind, I think, internationally, really. And it's this attempt to sort of regulate privatised public space to ensure that all privately owned public spaces are sort of held up to the same kind of core principles. And, and you can Google it and you can see all the principles, but they're things like making sure they're free of charge, you know, making sure that they're welcome for everyone to use, uh, making sure that it's transparent as to who even owns this public space that you're using. And so, yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> sorry, in, in, answer, in answer to your question, there has been a huge kind of scale and pace, which public space, privatised public space has grown, especially over the past few decades with this sort of fire sale of, of public lands. And I don't, I, I think there's kind of, I suppose it's, we are where we are with it. You know, there are also examples of private developers sort of opening up private pieces of land for the public to use. So it's a very sort of nuanced discussion, but it's ensuring that everyone is sort of aligned in this vision, I suppose, of opening up our, our privately owned public spaces so that everyone feels welcome and can use them. So there's certainly some challenges there. Um, Gareth, have you also seen a growth in public realm developed by private clients in your projects? Uh, yes, uh, yes, certainly have. I think probably where I'd like to start, though, is some, somewhere more closer to home. So the Civic Engineers London studio is based down near uh, Tower Bridge. And if I walk to work, I walk through uh, a development called Moore London. 
where the GLA are, or are at the moment, maybe, not, or used to be, used yeah, to be. Now, now, <laughs> now moved. Um, but that's a really interesting private-public space. Now, that was done in, in the noughties, that development. And actually, um, yes, there's sort of a, lot of a lot of hard landscaping around it, but there's also a certain amount of green landscaping. And, and it's interesting that that green landscaping is really, really well used uh, in the summer months. Everyone's out on it. There's all sorts of activities and events which happen there. And the hard landscaping, although there's quite a lot of it, it does get used pretty well too. There's an amphitheatre in that space and Christmas markets go and use that place, et cetera, um, et cetera. So I think, though, what's what's happening, and certainly I think uh, hopefully the influence which we like to have as, as engineers on projects is that we're beginning to think a, a lot more about how we introduce hardwired green infrastructure into, into the sort of... Um, the public and private uh, development spaces. So uh, as you started the conversation at, at the beginning, Claire, was we've obviously had quite a few flooding issues in the UK over the, the last year and across Europe. And um, we've got to improve how we collect our surface water and discharge it into the local uh, surface water drainage networks um, to try and collect this at source uh, by using suds, grain gardens, other nature-based solutions is, is, is really important to do that. So in terms of what we want to, to try and achieve in these external spaces is, yes, we want them to work functionally around the buildings which, which the private developers have got their uh, intentions for. Um, but also we want to invite people in and we, to invite people in, we want to make them friendly and nice places. And often that means uh, introducing green infrastructure, um, improving the biodiversity, um, using trees to help cool the space in the summer as well when it gets hot. And then using the green infrastructure to, to, to soak away the drainage, uh, clean any contaminants and, and discharge that more slowly into the, into the water courses or into the sewer system to prevent flash flooding from happening from what we've seen across London. We are working uh, with a housing developer out in Southend who have joint ventured with a local authority. And there we are reclaiming land by reducing the amount of, of actual highway space, which is a good thing too. And as part of that development, the, the, it really is a sort of um, a combined effort between the, the housing association and the local authority to work together to make those green spaces work, to make them uh, available to, to soak up the water from the roads and the other spaces around the development so that we, we can create spaces which are, are more sustainable. In central London, um, and this is probably leading back to a conversation that you and I had, Claire, on the top of a rooftop back in back in the summer. Feels like a long time ago, <laughs> yeah, summer, doesn't it? Now? It does, does feel like a long time ago in the mists of winter. There's there's other uh, developers which own quite a lot of land or landowners, like the Crown Estate or the Cadogan Estate, and although they don't necessarily own the land in front of their buildings, uh, whether it's Sloan Street or Regent Street. I think they have a vested interest in that space because one of the key issues to is there's so many stakeholders that many people have to come together and some people have to pay for it as well. And where those finances to help introduce the improved sort of um, public realm space and introducing all these nature-based solutions. So everyone needs to work together. But the developers or landlords have got a vested interest, I think, or they should have more of a vested interest because if they can improve that space in front of their buildings, it's going to entice people to want to come and work in those buildings or shop in those buildings and generally be in that area. So if we can improve the streets and the places around the buildings, that's uh, only going to 
to uh, pay dividends for, for those people who, who want to develop buildings around them. And it's interesting you say about, you know, the, how people should consider like uh, the spaces opposite the, the um, developments that they're building, because um, my next question was, when it comes to the design of these spaces, uh, what have been the main considerations for the clients up to now? Um, has it been solely focused on the benefits to the development or is the wider community needs taken into consideration? I, I think, um, I, th I mean, I think it completely varies between different developers, between even different parts of the public sector. And a lot of it is about how long-term a vision people are, are thinking in as well. Like if you're thinking in a very short-term, quick financial kind of just needs to get the profit as quick as possible um i think that's when you don't see as good pieces of place making in the city when you're thinking much more strategically and longer term and getting the community in uh, to really understand and test ideas and understand what a place can become i think that's when you get really successful parts of a city sort of evolving um over time and i think that's what the most successful developers are doing i thought it was really interesting what gareth was saying about sort of private um private developers versus the public sector because a lot of what we were exploring with the pavilion was how there's this perception of public is good and private is bad and often it's very much just binary conversation and you have to agree of one or the other but in fact we are all living in this weird intertwined uh, world and so the whole idea of the pavilion is that we're exploring that middle ground we're exploring this kind of realm of private public and how um, not just both sectors can work together, but you sort of do need both types of spaces. Like you do need your private home <laughs> where you're living, you know, and and the city kind of relies off these kind of different thresholds um, of spaces that allow you allow you in. But how do we uh, kind of break that down to make sure that people don't feel excluded and everyone feels welcome? And I suppose for, for us, we use this painting uh, called The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch, which is set up as a triptych. And that we use as a kind of tool to actually um, allow these conversations where we'd say, you know, on this triptych, you've got the hell, um, you've got hell on the right, you've got heaven on the left, and then you've got this middle ground in between. And we set up these conversations with different stakeholders and developers and community groups using this painting to say, look, we're all living in this in-between world. And that would then allow these kind of more nuanced conversations where people weren't immediately like, oh, they're evil. And I think what we found is that often, actually, people do have very aligned visions. Like Gareth's saying, like, it is to a developer's advantage to have like a buzz and footfall um, in a city. But the way that we're talking about it is slightly different. And the way that we're all coming at it in these very kind of segregated, siloed groups um, just is, is very different. And if you kind of break that down, and I suppose we're looking at how the architect can sort of act as this communicator to bring different groups together around an aligned vision. That's when you can start to sort of make really kind of meaningful change, uh, because there isn't really any one sector which is responsible for kind of or, or actually has the power to really, really change things. It's when we all come together with our different expertise and skills. That's when we can really start to uh, create more kind of accessible and welcoming and exciting public spaces. Yeah, I think I think as well we were really interested, like historically, like in World War Two. So you know you have a lot of those kind of uh, garden squares um, in Georgian cities across the UK. So London, Bath, like lo loads of cities have these garden squares. And in World War Two, the railings were taken down around the garden squares and melted to be used um, as ammunition. 
And there's loads of really interesting texts from the time uh, by people like George Orwell talking about how for the first time people from all walks of life can start to use these squares. And we're talking to like elderly people and they're telling us, you know, these squares, they became places not just that you can meet anyone from all walks of life, but, you know, we'd start to grow things there and really start to take them over. And then after the war, the railings were reinstated by English heritage. And now you have some squares are accessible, but on the whole, they're still closed off um, and private and they're not really very well used. And especially in central London, um, sort of pre-COVID times when everyone was working in the offices, what you get is a lot of people eating their lunch sort of on the pavement outside the square, but the square was completely like not used at all. And so we started off having some conversations with some of the owners of these squares talking about, you know, why why can't we open them up? Like, you know, what what is the issue? And there's just this kind of perception that if they, you know, the the actual landowners, they're kind of open to it, but there's this perception that it will lead to crime or, you know, that that somehow you're letting people that that will then lead to kind of antisocial behaviour. But, you know, I think I think actually understanding those issues then was really important as part of a conversation because then we could start to address them with them. Um, and then they start to say, OK, like, let's just start to test this. Let's just start to test if we do open up the square like one or two times a year, what happens? And it was really interesting because they were saying, you know, we started to open up the square and it sort of led to a a renewed kind of interest from our local residents around the square to actually use their gardens. And, you know, suddenly you have got a buzz and it does, like like Gareth was saying, it does then start to bring people into the wider developments and stuff. So I think it's thinking about cities as part of this wider network and it's not just about one physical space, but how that's interacting with the wider kind of um, urban realm. It really is, isn't it, Madeline? A bit about hearts and minds sometimes with all of this. It's kind of, there's so many different stakeholders to, to play with and just getting one to understand the other. And I think you need, as a designer, to have quite a lot of emotional intelligence and empathy to understand a lot of the different people's views and opinions about these spaces and what they mean to them. Uh, an example is, uh, you know, we want to try and introduce hardwired green infrastructure into the streets and, and work in a private development. It's actually not too difficult if they're going to maintain it because uh, they know what the cost is and, and, and they can do it. But but if that land is going to be handed back over to the local authority, then they've got concerns within their highway department, so to, so to say, that the maintenance is going to be too much or they just don't understand it. And there's too much complexity there. So you know, the, the old guard come in and say, well, can we just do it the old way? Or there is just a specific way we can do. And it's it's trying to unlock that. But to unlock that, we've got to get everyone to understand what we're trying to do, the reasons why we're trying to do it. And, and more importantly, the biggest focus on this is really about sustainability and, and creating livable cities, you know, places where we all want to be and hang out, places we all want to go back to after after sitting in our houses for so long during the during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I think we were talking earlier, Gareth, about how uh, often the issue is that the easiest thing to do is nothing. And how do we therefore uh, change that attitude to risk, that it is okay to try and test these new ideas? Um, and like you're saying, that then can actually lead to really meaningful change. So, Madeline, have you got some recent examples of projects that have done done this really well in terms of the design and what elements of the design would you consider to be best practice? I think that's a really good question as well because we're talking earlier and I think everyone's sort of after this one size fits all model which doesn't exist but I think there's sort of a series of principles that you can take forward on a project 
which then leads to a kind of locally specific design, which which does work. And one of those is to make sure you're really bringing in the community uh, from the very beginning, I think, rather than these very tick box uh, com- consultations. And the opportunity to really use that as a way to test, like physically test ideas as well. Um, so we were part of a project over the summer called the People's Pavilion, uh, which was in the Olympic Park in London. And that was, it was run by Beyond the Box consultants who sort of really good at um, engagement with young people. And they took uh, young people from seven East London boroughs and through this co-design process, created this pavilion, which is the first uh, first pavilion, I think, in London uh, to be curated, built and designed by young people. And it was just up for a week, but it really tested how this piece of the Olympic Park could be used it really engaged local young people into kind of getting more interested in the design um, of what's going on around them. And I think it was a very successful way of getting people to also meet and uh, kind of drive this kind of communal uh, kind of way of of really transforming our cities. And so I I think I I really believe in sort of engaging with uh, young people because they're they're our future. (laughs) But also I think when you have things like... um, a lot of my experiences in sort of doing community making workshops and things like that. And I think when you're making things together, so for example, when I was at Studio Weave, we we uh, ran this series of workshops in Raynham and Essex, which were these community consultation workshops where we'd make these benches, uh, which would then remain on the site, but gave people a way to come back to that site and sort of see what they'd made. But the most important thing really was the conversations we were having with people as we were making these benches, because it's a very different kind of conversation you have than when you go at them with like a drawing. <laughs> and what do you think about this drawing? And I think really exploring and testing how we're working with people um, is is really important. And I also think when Agarif was talking earlier about the rain gardens, for example, Something for me which is so attractive about that is not do they just visually look nice, but they get people really interested in actually what is going on with their drainage. And it's the way that you start to visually connect people with what's going on rather than just burying everything underground. Um, and I think any way that we get people to really understand their impacts uh, from a sustainable perspective, from every kind of perspective, really, um, in a city is, is really important and the power that you as a citizen really do have over your urban environment. So it's not so much the design side of things, it's about the engagement and having that personal personal involvement in it and ownership and feeling like they're part of it. So, but without naming names or locations, are there any projects you've seen where space has not been delivered well? In your opinion, what was it that led to those issues? Going back, I do think there are certain design things you can't, like certain design moves you can make as well. Um, It's not just about the engagement, but I think the engagement really is the core of where it starts. Um, But I do think it's really important to kind of reduce thresholds. You know, as soon as you have uh, things like homeless spikes, you know, to prevent homeless people from sleeping somewhere. I think it's really important in public spaces to make sure you're providing free benches and free, like free places for people to sit um making sure there's like free drinking water uh free public toilets you know it's it's making sure that uh, a space is designed to be used by anyone for free i think is really important and i think king's cross is really successful in that respect um as a development because it does provide public toilets that anyone can use um which is far too rare like you know this is something that i think should be sort of almost compulsory 
And so, yeah, I do, I do think there certainly are design moves. And I thought it was really interesting. There's a, an artist in, um, in Bournemouth called Stuart Sample, um, and he noticed the homeless on the benches in Bournemouth High Street. They had these extra armrests, which wouldn't allow homeless people to sleep on them. So he started this design crime uh, sticker campaign where he'd stick them design crime on these uh, benches and that actually encouraged the council to then get rid of them and I think it just made people visually aware actually um, of these really like severe and awful um, <laughs> design moves that are also being made and actually I, I would agree are design crimes and um, that doesn't really fix anything <laughs> um, so yeah I think in terms of uh, sort of how how well spaces are delivered I think it is about really thinking about who can use them and anyone who can't use them, why can't they use them and how do we therefore make it accessible for everyone. So, Garrett, have you also got some examples of best and poor practice when it comes to design of private public spaces? Um, I, th- I think going back to a little bit what I said earlier, I, th- I, think, um, I think developers, designers together are understanding that we want to add more green infrastructure into our public spaces. That said, it's important that there are spaces for people to congregate, to protest. Um, you know, it, that's people need to have those sort of spaces. And if, and if you've got a large amount of green infrastructure everywhere and you're putting trees everywhere, you're not going to allow that to happen. But spaces need to work well. They need to work in their environment. They, it's not just about the, the micro of that one site. It's about the macro. Where does that sit in, in amongst all the other roads and streets? Um, and where you're going to be collecting, where's your water coming to, where's it going? How do you move to a space? If, if a space has got uh, you know, a large amount of, of large roads around with lots of traffic, I, you know, there's no point having a fabulous space to go to if, if you don't actually look outside of your box and look outside what's going on and try and influence that. Because you want your space as a gem as it could be if, if, you've, if you've not helped influence what's going on around you to want to en- encourage people to come into your, your space, then, then, then it's not going to be a success. I think more and more successful places are being produced in terms of uh, public spaces. We've been working with Haringey up, in, um, up near Tottenham Stadium, White Hart Lane, and there we've redesigned uh, the street. Um, working with a landscape architect and so that we have introduced a whole load of suds into the scheme the water we've reduced the width of the road actually we've done we did a lot of analysis on on, on what space was actually needed and we've reclaimed a lot of of the street created more public ground we've introduced trees we've introduced rain gardens which collects the water and um, allows that to filtrate back through some the soils and into the into the surface water network uh, beforehand uh, you know well it, it still does happen unfortunately because that's still a micro part of a macro uh, area where there's a big collection of water which at the end of the day after a big flash flood in in, in the in the summer it washes down a whole load of pollutants down into the river Lee and before you know it, you, you've got really poorly fish um, but if that can be an influence on the next street and the next street and the next street and if we if uh, um, the local authority and the teams within that local authority, the planners and the highway maintenance people can come together, then there's more chance that uh, we can create these these really good places, which act as nice places to be, but also environmentally friendly. Because you you mentioned a lot about SADS. And so um, 
it's 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 very interesting this uh if we could hear some uh good examples of what clients are doing to add climate resilience to their developments um i th- i think this is where we're going to take take a slight divergence where we've been talking primarily about space is at ground level i was lucky enough to get a tour yesterday at for 22 bishops gate which is now one of the tallest buildings in in the city and being up there and looking down across london um it's the vast amount of the city is still buildings okay so we talked about and trying to improve the green infrastructure at street level and and retrofitting streets is so important to do that as we've been talking about but the retrofitting of building and the roof spaces on building i see is equally as important as we try and tackle climate change um as an example uh at the moment everyone is beginning to understand the importance of embodied carbon for years we have been um knocking down old building stock and rebuilding or maybe uh, generally genuinely creating better buildings but the focus has been so much on carbon emissions and and creating a far more sustainable functioning building that that what's been lost is how much embodied carbon has been put into the existing buildings and if you look across london there are so many buildings with potential to to repurpose the roof space or, or or even add stories and repurpose the roof roof space and what we're finding with developers that we're working with at the moment and they've all got their own ESG environmental social governance targets and they're really really now looking carefully at the buildings they own and how they can adapt them adapt them yes to to get some additional stories which obviously will, will yield further profits maybe in the future but also how can you then collect the water which is was currently just landing on those buildings and being directed into the sewer which is um you know adding to the effect of of the flooding problems which we've got across london if you can control your own water on your own building site and let that dissipate more slowly into the surface water um system then then that's going to help alleviate flooding a- across the city so what we're finding is yes we can add green roofs yes we can add blue roofs onto buildings and you know taking it one step further um Maddy and I were were beginning to discuss this earlier is uh you know should there be some some changes in 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 policy going forward where we could uh where the local authorities and the planning policy would allow you to add some stories on the basis that you stick a green roof on top and you know that green green roof that green space that that could be a public space as well in some of these buildings and create more places for for londoners or other city dwellers uh in other places of the uk to go and visit and spend time we're also doing a lot of work at the moment with um a developer called skyrim who are building key worker housing on existing rooftops across london um and a lot of what we're looking at there is uh when you add the key worker housing not only is there an opportunity to add some more public space but also to actually upgrade the existing uh kind of block that that is going on top of uh because yeah i mean we have a lot of housing and a lot of other types of um building out there which you know they're not up to modern day thermal standards um and there is a lot of improvement that we can do to our existing uh buildings you know to really help with the climate emergency as well so Yeah, we were talking about how it'd be really interesting to almost map the existing city um and understand actually how but the potential structurally that uh for each of the buildings that exist to actually take on a certain number of stories 
and understand the potential of what our, our city really could become. Um, it'd be really interesting. There's certainly cases in the press recently where uh, the, the local planners, the, the planning authorities are, are actually forcing developers to relook at reusing existing buildings rather than knocking them down. Um, and actually looking at down from the top of Bishopsgate Tower uh, yesterday, there are a series of buildings with green roofs and they are the more recently refurbished or new buildings. So I think developers are conscious and they are doing their bit now and will need to continue doing their bit and wouldn't it be great you know in uh, 10 20 30 years suddenly we have a bit of a garden city which is actually floating on top of all the roofs of the buildings as, as well but um <laughs> i think that that may have been a sort of weird benefit of the past few years because it feels like countries like japan has have been way ahead of us in like making their rooftops really useful um, and we've sort of been a bit lazy in that regard but over the past few years, I think everyone's become really aware about the lack of outdoor space that they might have. I mean, I've certainly felt it living in sort of a small um, apartment in, in central London, um, that you're just kind of, you're, you're bursting for any kind of um, public outdoor space uh, that you can get your hands on. And there is so much opportunity to provide uh, different types of public space um, on these rooftops. I think, I suppose, just thinking about who can actually access them is also um, an important question uh, because I think of the Sky Garden um, in central London and the walkie-talkie building um, and that's something that you've always had to sort of book and there's sort of a series of thresholds you have to sort of pass to feel ever like you'd be welcome up there. You have to go through quite a lot of security don't you to get up there it's not exactly that you can just walk into. Exactly and once you're up there it, it it feels really uncomfortable because you're supposed to buy a drink and you know I, I think it it doesn't feel public in, in many many regards and like you're saying you're not just going to stumble across it um, and that's the biggest issue often with play spaces that are provided on rooftops um, is that people don't just stumble across them and so I guess it's just thinking about how we can make people aware as well of what might be going on on the rooftops above them. We were also talking earlier about the VAT um, issue, <laughs> which, uh, well, I don't know if you want to pick up on that, Gareth. Well, it, it's a conflict at the moment. The planners are, are wanting gradually uh, pivoting and asking people to relook at their buildings to stop um, uh, to stop wasting embodied carbon, which has already been invested in the construction of those buildings uh, originally. Um, but on the other hand. Uh, the VAT ruling is that you don't have to pay VAT on a new build, but you do on a refurb. So um, developers, you know, stuck in in, in, in two minds. Uh, I think they need to be incentivized to want to be able to to make these differences, to to be uh, more carbon conscious, to be more sustainable. And I, I think policy at the moment is conflicting and it needs to start aligning. Um, and there's a lot of work, I think, that that needs to happen there. And going back to the point about adding climate resilience to uh, developments, um, does it need to be mandated into the planning consent stage or are clients harnessing this approach to make their development appeal to tenants? I think there's a bit of both, isn't there? I think there is certainly, from, a, from an engineering point of view, you do have to now control a certain amount of, of your water which hits your, your development. Um, and you need to have a, a space externally uh, to to dwell and be uh, in in some of these big regeneration spaces. Uh, in 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 my um, in my experience, I've found that if it's embedded in policy, it makes things so much easier because 
your power, well, my power as an architect, um, I always feel like the project can only really be as good as the clients uh, because it's all about how forward thinking the client really is. And they ultimately, you know, they're ultimately paying for it. They ultimately make those big decisions to ever go forward with something, no matter how hard you try and persuade them. And if it's written there in policy, it makes things so much easier. So I'm working on a public realm project at the moment um, in South London, which also involves a series of roof terraces and um, because of the urban greening factor, uh, which I think is it's fairly new in policy. I think it came in last year. That's really helped us because it's meant we're providing all these kind of really interesting green spaces as part of this development. And the client is all for that because it's helping them get this development through planning. And so I, I really think if we can get these policies written in into planning and legislation, it's just so helpful for everyone because you don't even then have to have the conversation about whether this is a good or, or a bad idea. Everyone already knows this is a good idea. Um, I thought it's quite exciting. I think last year the government announced this net biodiversity gain, which they're writing into uh, legislation for all infrastructure projects. Um, and again, that's just going to make it so much easier if we already know we have to have a net biodiversity gain. No one's even going to question it. We just start with that. It's setting a good minimum standard that people have got to improve on rather than actually getting them to that minimum standard. Exactly. Yeah, it's that, it's that age old problem of when you have um, sort of standards that people just go for the minimum. And instead it's saying like, this is the baseline. Let's see how far we can go rather than there being a maximum there are de- there certainly is developers out there though who who want to go over and above and and sometimes that might be because they're in a joint venture with local authorities at the Mayfield depot up in manchester um, um working with you and i they've opened up the this the site there fantastically they've created a whole new public realm mm. um yes they've got themselves some new office buildings uh and, and other other spaces to be but they've they've completely um Un- uncovered a river which was culverted through the industrial times and and you know they've they opened that up and created that into part of a park so there's a significant amount of cost associated with that but they know that that will then create a, a fantastic park a fantastic place to be and going back to what we were talking about earlier then having that investment on what's going on in front of your building creating that lovely space then more people are going to want to be in your buildings it makes your more your buildings worth worth more I think Mayfield's a great example because we've been talking a lot to uh, Martin about it as well. And um, from my understanding, it's this huge public park that would never have been able to be created, actually, without the developer stepping in because there just quite simply wasn't the money. There's just I think there is often this nostalgia for when the public sector had a lot of money um, and they don't. So um, I think getting the right developers on board or getting everyone to align their visions and understand uh, the importance of getting the public realm, public spaces right um, is really important and can actually then lead to those really exciting spaces for everyone to use. There are clearly some forward-thinking clients out there that really are going forward with this. But is the change happening fast enough on its own or do we really need to wait for government, ma- government mandates or should there be some kind of best practice guidance that could positively steer the change in the short term? In in the short term, um, I think there is a certain amount of guidance out there. There needs to be more guidance and there needs to be more policy. There needs to be um, more dictation on what what would need to be done with with existing buildings, with the spaces around your buildings. Um, I think it's coming and I think um, the bigger developers have, going back to their, their ESG targets, and they're really taking these seriously, seriously now. One of the, the 
the bigger restrictions that we've got. And Maddie and I were talking about it earlier. As much as a developer sometimes wants to push sustainability, often they really do want to push sustainability, but then they fall across the stumbling blocks once you get to insurers. So the insurers maybe will not, if they're not on the same page and they see it's too much risk, then they won't let you build a building out of timber or they won't want you to have collection of water on your roof because it's, it's potentially too big a risk to your building. And, and so we have to, it's those conversations we need to unlock. But if we're really going to work towards net zero carbon, then we, all of us in the industry, from um, people going to use the space, to the designers, to the developers, to those who are going to insure the buildings, all have to be on board. Um, and I think that is, that's the real key aspect here. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think best practice is always useful because, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but also learning lessons from the past and post-occupation analysis um, of projects, um, I think is also really important because so often we sort of design and build a project and then just sort of leave it. And I, I think bringing that in as well um, is really important, but more than anything, having a sort of cultural shift from being less scared of taking risks uh we were part of a, a round table with the gla sort of in the first just after first lockdown i think and they were talking about how within the gla there'd been a sort of huge cultural shift uh to think fast act fast and learn fast um and that was how they managed to roll out these cycle lanes really quickly that before then they've been taking years to try and do um, and i feel like we all need to adopt this attitude of thinking fast acting fast and learning fast you know, as long as we're learning from our mistakes, I think it's it's okay. I mean, obviously there are extremes where it's it's not, but I think on the whole, um, as as a sort of prof- as our professions and stuff, we need to share the risk more, like blame one another less, um, and just sort of move forward and look to the future rather than always looking back to the past. And uh, we have focused a lot on new developments so far, but what opportunities are there for existing estates? to look again at their properties and at climate resilience that benefits them and the wider communities? Certainly, uh, looking at existing estates, I think that um, developers have got the opportunity or landlords have got the opportunity to reassess their buildings, um, assess their capability um, for, uh, for supporting potentially additional stories, greening the rooftops, um, uh, maybe even greening the walls on the outside, um, and then understanding what landscape they've got around those buildings and how can they improve those? How can they hardwire some some SUDS infrastructure in, um, but do it in, in an economic way? But in a way, potentially by adding in the green infrastructure, it's just going to bring that extra value back to the entire development as well. So um, I think that there's always, always a way to improve ex- existing developments. It, it just takes uh, some careful unpicking, intelligence, understanding of, of existing spaces, infrastructure that's below the ground, the existing buildings, and there's always a way which something can be adapted uh, to suit for the future. Yeah, I um, I love working with existing buildings. It's most of what my experience has been in. And I, I completely agree. I think there's so much opportunity with all our existing buildings, um, not ju- like from a sustainability perspective, but also from uh, like an accessibility perspective. A lot of my experience has been in cr- making existing sort of buildings more disabled accessible 
and and things like that. And you know, very very small moves like making a door double swing or you know putting in ramps in the right place or, or a new lift, it can make a huge difference to who can actually access and use a space and their experience of that space. And I think the way that our our culture and our our kind of um, experience has has really moved on over the past for five ten years. It's almost worth going back and looking at every building and understanding how we can improve them um, from all these different perspectives. Because sometimes it's just very small moves which can make a huge difference. One one of the greatest moves I think developers can make is by creating more uh, public right of way through their land. And, you know, you look at uh, Bloomberg in the middle of London, they've created a whole new street through which people can use or other estates which are, which are being um, redeveloped and actually just creating some places within those estates where people from outside want to come and dwell and be, um, n- not making it just a place where the people live want to be, but creating mini hubs everywhere which you can organically move in between, I think is really p- important for the success of a place. If you've got a dead end, it's, it's never going to be successful. So there's always an opportunity, I think, and you develop any site. What can I do? What can I give back here to everyone at street level? You know, for office buildings, um, it's actually so many of the 80s office buildings just had a reception down at, at street level. Now you see they're being redeveloped. They've, they've got something else, they've got concierge in there, but they might have a bar or they might have somewhere, a, a bike hub to go and park your bikes or to have your bikes repaired, somewhere to take your clothes, to, to have those washed. Um, and actually giving something back at the street to add some vibrancy to, to the street at that ground level is a really big win for adapting some existing buildings. Yeah, keep your commercial office or your residential space above. If you really need to add an extra couple of stories, I know we keep talking about it, stick your green roof on, but... Um, there's, I think there's there's always an opportunity, and I think the what I would say is always good to to look out and not look in, and see what you can give back because I think in the long term that will actually give you more. So the drives are really clear when it comes to improving public space and also improving the climate mitigation that public space offers when it comes to new build properties, but with the need because you need to gain um, planning consent and demonstrate that new buildings don't worsen flood risk. How can local authorities work with the existing commercial property owners to create those mitigation opportunities there on existing properties that perhaps aren't ready for redevelopment but could have a few changes made on them? I think there has to be, I think there has to be some form of incentive because at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it, and these uh, making the changes uh, to improve your building, there has to be some some form of of incentive. Um, but adding things like green roofs or blue roofs to your building uh, would really help improve the biodiversity in the city and slow down the, the water, and, and which causes flash flooding, etc. However, to do that, the money isn't kind of come from from thin air, and so therefore, it might be that to, to achieve that, you, you're going to want to win something back. You, you might want to be able to transfer a space from office to retail at ground floor, to, which could in, increase some revenue, or you might want to be able to add another couple of stories. So I, I think it's they, there's so much that can be done, but I think it's policy which has got to allow people to adapt their buildings um, f- to make it a win-win situation. And it needs to encourage them to adapt them too, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the policy, but also the bureaucracy sometimes can prevent people from from making change because it's just so complicated or, you know, ludicrous to get the, the right sort of permissions. And how can we start to streamline those processes uh, to make it a lot easier 
to to start to um, upgrade our, our buildings so that they're more sustainable um, and allow different activities as well. I think there's um, some really like interesting examples on our high streets right now, obviously, which are sort of really suffering. Um, and in Bournemouth, there was the old Debenhams there, which has been converted into an art gallery now. One of the, uh, one of the first art galleries, I believe, in, in Bournemouth by Stuart Semple, um, into an art gallery called Giant. And he's just, um, he's worked, you know, with a, a local developer who's sort of very forward thinking and understood, you know, if we actually do something with this space rather than leave it just to, you know, rot, essentially. It actually then allows more successful places along the high street and starts to provide a place for lots of people to come and meet and, you know, for people to be exposed to the arts. And I think, I think any kind of incentive to use derelict buildings like that is is really, really important and making those processes as simple as possible so that people don't give up at the first hurdle. Um, really important. And uh, Gareth, do you have any examples where like local authorities have been working with commercial property owners? Yes, yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I think going back to the Mayfield Depot, uh, you and I uh, and, and the... Um, the local authorities in Manchester and I think National Rail involved there as well, that they're, they're working together on a piece of land which they couldn't unlock themselves if it wasn't for the developer to come in. But they're working in tandem and they're getting something back through that as well. Um, housing developers uh, working in joint venture with uh, local authorities uh, to, to optimise uh, spaces within town centres, um, reducing... Uh, land taken over by large highways, which would have been in, 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 in the local authorities sort of ownership. But thinking about that and, and the spaces and the roads and the, the, the pockets of land which have been developed together, uh, then you can unlock and start thinking about future schemes in a way which are going to be far more sustainable. I think that's just about all we've got time for today. It sounds like there's really lots of opportunities for the future. So thank you for both joining us in that discussion. It's been really interesting. And I think with the growing evidence of climate change impact, I think it's been an area we're going to be seeing increasing focus on. So having some examples of good practice, which we discussed today, will be ever more important. So here is Catherine. I'll be back soon with another episode of The Engineers Collective. So thank you for listening. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities. Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.